0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Corey Ann Haydu author of YA novels, OCD Love Story, Life by Committee, Making Pretty, the middle grade novel, Rules for Stealing Stars, and the upcoming YA novel, The Careful Undressing of Love. Her second middle grade novel, The Someday Suitcase, came out in June of 2017. A graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and the New School's Writing for Children MFA program, Corey has been working in children's publishing since 2009. Corey joined me to talk about the querying process, how the acting world helped thicken her skin for the ups and downs of publishing, and the importance of being comfortable in what you're wearing while doing appearances. Middle grade and young adult authors, are you interested in a new platform that pays you and makes your work available to millions of Amazon Alexa and Google Home users? To find out more, visit selectastory.com. start by asking authors about their querying process how they found an agent anything to help illuminate that struggle for those who are still in it so give us a little background on what this was like for you how long you were querying how many queries you sent whatever you feel comfortable sharing
1: i had kind of a tricky querying process in that it took me forever to find an agent i probably queried upwards of 70 or 80 agents I was getting a lot of interest after sending pages in a synopsis, and then I was getting zero interest on the full. So it was a lot of up and downs. Oh my gosh, a request, a full request, so exciting. And then nothing happening and nothing coming of it. And when I connected with my agent, Victoria, even that was sort of a wonkier process. I, I had another offer on the table from an agent I wasn't super enthusiastic about. I just didn't feel like she was the right fit. And Victoria was interested and had a lot of ideas, but she wasn't sold on the project I had been querying with. And she asked if I had anything else, took a look at like maybe a hundred pages of like a very messy, rough version of OCD Love Story. And she was like, oh, interesting. She didn't offer, but then a, a couple weeks passed and I got a call from her and she was like, I know you can do this work. We'll figure it out. I love your writing. Let's do it. It was sort of a strange process that didn't have as much definitive excitement as other people's did. I got signed by an agent, but, like, we don't even really know what project is the right project.
0: So your agent is? Victoria Marini. So you had an unsold project that went out first. I know that can be really deflating when you're first (laughs) getting out there because... You do have this feeling like, Yes, I got an agent, and you're you're running that roller coaster again of, oh, I got a request, oh, I've got a fallout, and you're all excited about everything. And then deflation. It's even on a larger scale because it's not an agent telling you now, it's an editor. And my first novel that went out with an agent did end up becoming my debut, but it was a close thing. I took out not a drop to drink with Adrian. I believe we were on submission for almost six months, and Adrian said, okay, here's our last list of 10 we're going to, and if this doesn't stick, you're going to write something new. And then on that last round of 10, I actually had three editors <sighs> offer. So funny. I think it's very typical that when someone is interested it perks the interest of others i see it in querying with agents and then i see it with editors if you notify them you're like well we've got an offer on this and they're like oh oh well what is someone else seeing this that they think is going to sell and then
1: there's excitement yeah it changes the game it like really switches the dynamic around which is interesting it's it's all these things you just kind of need that one bite more things can fall into place from there
0: I think it's interesting that your agent signed you not on a particular project, but on the strength of your writing in
1: general. That's pretty cool. You don't hear that very often. But it helped me to feel like the book exists. I just haven't written it yet. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Like mm -hmm. like that the belief is there and people are responding to my writing, but I haven't yet figured out how to write the novel that I need to write. It was hard because it felt... Hazier than some other people's journeys, but it also was confidence boosting on on another level and I was coming out of being an actress, which is like such a rejection filled business that I was getting any response at all <laughs> was a change from the acting world.
0: I can't even imagine the amount of rejection and emotional roller coaster involved
1: in acting. <laughs> it's a nightmare <laughs> I don't miss it even a little bit. <laughs> Were you doing stage or film or TV? I was, I was doing a little bit of everything. I really wanted to be doing stage, but that was you know, not making me any money. So I was doing some commercial and film stuff on the side, but all pretty low level. Like I never really broke through to what I envisioned a career would look like. And it just was too tough a world for me. I always said when I went into publishing and I got rejections, like people would actually respond with a rejection, that was such a big step up from acting where, like, you just don't ever hear anything at all. And also how much focus is on your physical appearance in the entertainment industry was just not, like, a healthy space for me.
0: I have friends that live in L.A., and one of really pretty girls, she's very attractive, and she tells me that when she moved to L.A., she just gave up. She says, I don't do my hair. I don't do my face. I don't dress nicely when I go out because she said, it doesn't matter. She's like, I'm pretty, but I can't compete.
1: Everyone else is exactly anything before supermodel is kind of irrelevant.
0: Good practice for building thick skin for publishing, I'm sure.
1: practice. The best practice. Like really nothing bothers me in the industry now because at least they're not telling me to get Botox. In publishing, you tend to get feedback that can help you, you know, Uh feedback you can learn from, criticism that you can be challenged and engaged in. I don't experience as much empty rejection where I've just gotten nothing from the process. At Mm -hmm. least in this process, even when I'm getting rejected, I tend to be learning something.
0: And you're absolutely right about your physical appearance not really mattering when you're an author. Mm-hmm. Something that I really enjoy about being an author is that, or an artist in general, is that you know, you're know you allowed to be quirky. You can wear whatever you want, and no one is like, oh, you look unprofessional. Everybody's like, oh, you're a writer.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it took me a while to embrace that more. Like, I spent my first couple years trying to be business casual. or It's not what I like to wear. I like to wear leggings and like my weird patterns. And that's what I'm going to wear.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very true. I did as well because I came out of a job that had a dress code and... Mm-hmm. I had a lot of nicer clothes in my closet, and I would wear them. I would wear them to events, and I'm walking through parking lots that went in, in the rain and the snow and high heels carrying a 40-pound box of books and almost breaking my ankle. <laughs> and then I met Maggie Stiefvater, who wears yeah. jeans that are just ripped to shreds and old T-shirts. She's Maggie Stiefvater. <laughs> I was like, all right, this is stupid. I
1: like jeans. I like to wear my sneakers. And it's a life lesson, too. Feeling comfortable gives you a leg up anywhere you are. If you're not comfortable, that's not going to serve you anyway. Feeling comfortable in what you're wearing is going to serve you in in most places.
0: Well, and I learned, too, early on in my first couple years when I was doing school visits, if I looked like a teacher, the kids Mm -hmm. would react to me like a teacher. Totally. Totally. And if I was wearing jeans and a T-shirt or, like, whatever, they would come up to me and they would talk to me, and they would be cool, and they would treat me like one of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You don't have to have that same distance. You have to have, if you are sort of an authority figure.
0: Right. I didn't look like a teenager, obviously. I'm almost 40. But, you know, (laughs) I was dressed like them, and I was approachable. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And that mattered. It made a difference. It's a wonderful thing that has never come up on the podcast before, but definitely be yourself when it's your time to go out there and be you, because... Like I said, I have all these nice clothes and gave most of them away because it's like, I'm not going to wear these. I don't like them.
1: Yeah. And you can't focus when you're feeling, or at least for me, like I can't focus when I'm feeling like I'm playing pretend or trying to be someone I'm not. It starts to crowd the moment. So you're at an event or on a panel and you're wearing this outfit that isn't you. And you're like hyper aware of that instead Mm -hmm. of being able to relax and engage and talk to people and talk about what you care about.
0: Yeah, especially shoes. That's a thing.
1: Yeah, totally. Because I would
0: wear like heels or wedges. Every time I would walk up the stupid little folding stairs up to the panel. (laughs) I was just like, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. (laughs) And then you walk back down. and It's like, don't fall, don't fall. Before the panel, I'm worrying about falling, going up the stairs. And then during the panel, I'm thinking you got to make sure you don't fall when you come down. And it's like, okay, this is dumb
1: yeah it's taking all the fun and the joy out of those experiences to have to to put yourself through that
0: up next writing about OCD from a place of understanding and the moment of choosing a voice for a story that determines whether it will be middle grade or YA Aspen Quick's family has a unique ability, they can reach inside people and steal their innermost things, fears, memories, scars, even love. It's this ability, and the secret ritual that goes with it, that keeps their small mountain towns safe. But when Aspen meets a girl immune to his power, he finds out just how far his family will go to protect their secrets. Rocks Fall, Everyone Dies by Lindsay Rybar, a paranormal suspense novel about power, addiction, toxic masculinity, and a sentient cliff that might just fall and kill everyone. So let's talk about your debut, OCD Love Story, which came out in 2013. OCD is a condition that is easily misunderstood and often talked about lightly. So what was your approach to dealing with this as a topic for a YA novel?
1: I came to the topic of OCD through my own anxiety, which isn't an OCD anxiety, but is a sort of generalized anxiety. And as I was reading up on that diagnosis and trying to understand what anxiety even was and all the you know many, many, many ways it can affect your life, I learned in that period of time that OCD was also an anxiety disorder, which was something I didn't know, which kind of shocked me because I'm someone who has always been interested in mental health and therapy and all that kind of stuff. So that that somehow it had passed over me that OCD was an anxiety disorder and not in some other class was a real wake-up call. And when I was reading about OCD, I was like, oh my gosh, I relate to everything about this. You know, my behavior, the way I cope with anxiety is different. But all the base emotional feelings are exactly the same. And I was so interested in the way the different kinds of anxiety are just a million different ways to cope with that base feeling. And so I wanted to write about OCD from that perspective of the base feeling of anxiety, which I think so many people struggle with and understand and try to shrink that valley a little bit between anxiety and OCD, which are all in the same family. I wanted to write about OCD really as an anxiety disorder, which it is, and from a place of understanding that the only thing that varies in anxiety disorders is the way we cope with them and the behaviors around them and not the the basic feelings and the emotions and those hurdles.
0: OCD is one that people think they have an understanding of it, and Mm -hmm. they actually don't. They think it's all about keeping things straight washing your hands or a neatness fixation and there's even a lot of casual jokes about it and i oh, yeah. actually hear it a lot when i was in the library because i would straighten spines just because i like having all the books spines straight and people would be like oh ocd and i'm like actually no that's it's nothing you have no idea what you're talking about
1: it's very frustrating it's it's one of the most overused terms i think it's so colloquial at this point that it's lost all meaning which is how you can be someone who's interested in mental health and has an anxiety disorder and still somehow view OCD as something totally other, when really it's like your sister. The best thing that happened out of that experience, aside from just all the fun of publishing, is people saying that it's it's changed their perspective on using the term OCD casually, using it to mean anal which is now what OCD means and that it sort of blew open their understanding of, of the different ways OCD exists ways it manifests because um, I really tried to show that it's set with a with a therapy group and I tried to show a lot of different forms of OCD so talk a little bit about the plot
0: then of, of the book and the setting how you did distribute those behaviors across your your cast of characters
1: totally it's so fun to talk about this book all these years later So OCD Love Story is about Beck and Bia, those are the two main characters, and they're both struggling with different types of OCD. Um, And they're both sort of at the beginning of their understanding of what that struggle is going to look like. Bia in particular, she's the narrator, she has just recently gotten diagnosed with OCD and is really fighting that diagnosis, is really uncomfortable with that diagnosis, has a million reasons in her head why why she isn't someone that could possibly have that thing She gets put in group therapy, which is a really common treatment for OCD. Exposure therapy is what I focused on in writing OCD Love Story, which is to like crazy simplify it when you're sort of forced to really lean into your anxiety and let it explode because a lot of what OCD is trying to keep anxiety at bay and a lot of the solution to OCD and a lot of the help for OCD has to do with being okay with that anxiety and not doing all these behaviors to try to keep it in bay and just just letting yourself feel it. And once you're feeling it, anxiety, you can't exist in that state of heightened anxiety for too, too long. So the book is really about the, uh, coming to terms with that diagnosis and then also being in this group of other kids who are also dealing with OCD in different manifestations, which includes trichotillomania as well, which is when you pull out strands of hair that's an OCD compulsion. And they're all sort of undergoing this exposure therapy and trying to accept levels of anxiety, get comfortable with feeling anxious sometimes, and not do a ton of behaviors to try to not feel anything, but to let those feelings in. And while everyone in this group is going through that process, Bia and Beck are also falling in love with each other. I really wanted to write a love story that occupies a space that I hadn't seen a lot of at that particular time, which is something like a mental health struggle is not the only struggle going on in your life at any one time. And that OCD might be one part of a thing that you deal with in a relationship, one sort of hurdle you have in a relationship, but there's a million others. Not cure each other, but get healthier. The healing
0: process involved in a group and the kind of dynamic that is built there, it's definitely a useful tool.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of my experience with group situations have to do around addiction. I was really interested in what those group scenarios would be like as a teenager, when you're so much more available in some ways, like more ready to be sparked by someone else. I think you don't have as much as many layers Mm -hmm. between you and the world. It was really exciting to sort of explore that. Something I knew a little, a little bit about, a group therapy environment, but shifted into a different age frame and a different theme. Mm-hmm. My experience has been as a family member of someone going through treatment, being in, in group therapy situations with other family members and visiting group therapy of the person in treatment. When you're a visitor of that group scenario in particular, you see like a whole new side of your family member. Interacting with these people that they have this thing in common with that you don't have in common with them. And you see a new side of this person that you know so well who you've really been seeing with a disease. And suddenly they're in this group therapy and they're this whole new person and more comfortable with themselves. And I wanted to look at that, too. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of discomfort in mental health treatment, like good discomfort. And there's a lot of discomfort in group therapy. And then there's also a real safety and security in group Mm -hmm. therapy. That Mm -hmm. push-pull is interesting to me. You write both
0: YA and middle grade. So can you talk a little bit about how you move in between those two age ranges? Do you ever have to smother a slightly younger or a slightly older voice when you're working on uh, different projects?
1: I would say when I first made the switch from YA to middle grade, I struggled to figure out what that perfect voice was. I was leaning a little young for middle grade. I think I was kind of overcompensating and I had to bring it back up a little bit. But now it's it's more natural. The stories sort of tell you what age they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be. So I've never had to really try to fit a square peg Mm -hmm. in a round hole. The story I'm choosing for a middle grade novel is right for middle grade. And so the voice kind of comes easily. I never really intended to write middle grade. And now I would say in a lot of ways, it's where I'm more comfortable, which has been an interesting surprise and a good reminder to try different things, to to not think you know everything about what your career is going to look like and Mm -hmm. where you fit in. I was like really solidly YA. And at one point in grad school, we did an exercise. It was a class that focused on middle grade literature and we were just doing like a quick 10 minute exercise. And I'm a big rule follower. So I was like, oh, I better write in a middle grade voice, you know, for this 10 minute exercise that doesn't even matter. I did that and it was kind of fun and I put it aside for years and then just returned to it. It was always in the back of my head as something I had randomly enjoyed doing and had surprised Mm. myself by enjoying. And when I returned to it, I was like, maybe I do have a middle grade story in me. Maybe there is some middle grade voice that interests me. That sort of poured out. And then once I was in, I was hooked. I mean, I really love middle grade at this point. I I love YA too, but it's a different Mm -hmm. relationship. Middle grade for me at this point just comes more easily. It even feels a little freer. I guess in some ways there's more restrictions in terms of language and stuff like that, but it frees me up, which is an interesting kind of twist.
0: Yeah, definitely. I have my mother always telling me that she would like to see me write younger just because she wants to see me write a little more innocently. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like mom that's just not gonna happen I mean it's just it's not my voice I don't have it in me it's just not in me the only thing I could possibly write younger would be that sense of adventure and the openness to the world yeah
1: that's what appeals for sure approaching the world with less judgment approaching the world with less predisposition yeah. to liking or hating yeah. things there's a lot of joy and wonder in that Absolutely. part of the writing.
0: And an excite- the excitement of discovery, I think, is very big when you're young.
1: Yeah, which is what drew me to YA too, but you're discovering different right. things in YA than you are in For sure. <laughs> But in both, I think I was drawn to the same thing, which is that discovery and first times and newness and wonder, but they just sort of are different at the, in the different age ranges. And I'm pushing even younger now. I've started exploring what it's like to write a chapter book and what it's like to write a picture book. And I constantly am interested in a new challenge and trying to unlock something else. Turns out going younger has been a really valuable thing, which I don't think anyone reading my YA is like, wow, she'd be great at middle grade. Like my YA is not, not young YA. It's upper, upper, Mm -hmm. upper YA. It's pushing about as many boundaries as you can especially for people that are at the beginning of their process and, and figuring things out or even people further in. Just experimenting, just taking an afternoon to give yourself a different writing challenge may unlock things that you're not prepared for. You could surprise yourself. I think anyone can surprise themselves. I agree with that. So why
0: don't you tell us a little bit about some of your middle grade work so that we can get that on the radar for listeners.
1: So my first middle grade novel was Rules for Stealing Stars. It came out in 2015 and was actually based a lot on my experiences as the child of an alcoholic. The main character in that book is also the child of an alcoholic. So it's about four sisters who are struggling with their family situation, discover some magical closets inside their home that they disappear into. And it's really about marrying that magical world with the the reality Mm -hmm. they're living in. And it was sort of a way for me to write about something I'd always been writing about and around, which is what it is to live in a family that's dealing with addiction without really writing like a memoir. To create that distance was really, really valuable. So that was my first middle grade. And then the one that came out this year called The Someday Suitcase. And I originally pitched that book as My Girl Mm -hmm. with Magic. When I was trying to think of what my next middle grade novel was going to be, I often start with thinking about what I want it to feel like or what I want someone reading it to feel. And I was like, gosh, what did I love at 12? What was like the thing at 12 that made me feel the most? And I thought a lot about the movie My Girl. And I was like, I want my reader to mm-hmm. feel that way. I want to I mm-hmm. give them that feeling. So that was sort of the original inspiration. And then it went in a lot of new places. It's about a boy and a girl who are best friends. And the, the boy is named Danny, and he's starting to get sick. And the girl is named Clover, and she is a lover of all things science. As Danny gets sicker, the doctors are more and more flummoxed, and Clover takes it upon herself to try to figure out what's wrong with him and maybe also what makes him better. Though she's focused on science, she begins to open up to ideas of, of magic as things that maybe could help his illness or have to do with his illness. It's also a little bit of a story about codependency. They're so close that they consider themselves like almost symbiotic. And it's about what it is to give yourself so much to someone else that maybe you lose a little bit of mm, yourself. Yeah. Especially at that age. I think that's really easy. Definitely. I mean, I think friendship is so big at that age. A best friend is like your whole world, especially if your best friend's going through something hard. I think it's natural to want to feel like you should solve it and it should become your whole life and you should give up everything to help this person. I like making my characters begin the process of learning something that I myself am still trying to figure out.
0: Yeah, I think at that age, the friendships are all encompassing and all consuming. Yeah. At that age, the absolute lack of embarrassment about your enthusiasm for someone else. They're just so excited when they see each other and they run to each other and they hug. And especially when you have boy-girl friendships. I mean, I grew up with boy friends. That was my thing. And like, we would be so excited to see each other. And when people would joke about it or make it weird, it's like, we didn't make it weird. Other people made it weird for us, you know?
1: Totally. They're weird.
0: Because I was a little more standoffish when I was younger, a little more shy, a little more unsure. And so when I had to kind of process the idea that in general, girls usually weren't really, really, really good friends with guys, that really kind of messed with me because I was like, no, I, these are the people that I want to be with. So don't tell me who my friends are
1: yeah it's weird to be told like this is what you do and don't do when you're doing the opposite of yeah. that thing <laughs> you're like wait a minute that doesn't yeah, make any definitely. sense definitely it's
0: like no these this is who i like this is who i want to hang out with <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, exactly
0: coming up school visits how to survive them what to try and what to definitely not do also cory on teaching writing and how her manuscript critique services work So you do school visits. This is something that I know intimidates a lot of published authors. So can you talk about your general approach to school visits from how you make initial contact
1: to gaining the gig to actually handling your audience? The initial contact and getting a gig part is the part that I myself am really still trying to Mm -hmm. unlock. It's a mystery to me. It actually feels a little bit like being back in the acting world where you're like, how do you... Do it? How do you get to the next level? I've tried a lot of things. I mean, I was lucky enough with Rules for Stealing Stars to go on a school visit tour. So that was really great, not just connect with kids and and be out with the book, but also just good practice for getting confidence on what I had to offer in a school visit. But now that I haven't had that opportunity for a little bit, I'm doing a lot of cold calling just in my area trying to see if there's teachers who want to bring me in, trying to figure out what that looks like and how to make that worth my while and worth their while. And the like negotiating and figuring it out part isn't that comfortable for me. The actual school visit part is a total joy for me and really comfortable. So trying to figure out (laughs) how to get through the less comfortable part so that I can do the really fun part is something I'm still trying to figure out. But in terms of actual school visits... You know, I think partly coming from a background in acting that makes the public speaking part really not a super stressful part of the process and kind of fun to have a chance to be up in front of people without having to go back Mm -hmm. to acting. (laughs) Scratches that itch for me a little bit. I talk a lot about my process and keeping a journal when I was little, I kept journals my whole life. So I get to sometimes make them laugh by reading from that or showing them pictures of like the boy I liked. And then I'll do some sort of group activities that can sometimes go totally haywire, but are often just a really good reminder of how big a kid's imagination is, can really challenge you to push your own imagination more. Like they're just willing Mm -hmm. to go anywhere when you sort of open up that door. There's ups and downs, you know, like there's definitely school visits that get out of control. and I'm really small and most of these kids are going to be taller than me, even if they're in like fifth grade, I'm under five feet. So sometimes gaining the respect of a classroom can have tricky mm-hmm. moments. In general, they tend to go really, really well. And it tends to be like a lot of energy and you kind of feel like you're giving these kids like a little gift in the middle of the day to, to get out a bunch of creativity and fun say whatever and and let loose. They're so curious. They have a million questions about what it is to be an author. I would say 95% of the time, it is like nothing but pure Mm -hmm. joy. And 5%, you're like, oh my God, how do teachers do this? I could never be actually a teacher, which is true. I mean, I'm exhausted after like one Um, school visit. um, I don't know how um, teachers do whole day. I've done a couple whole days of like six or seven school visits a day. And I'm basically... Uh, useless to the world for like a week after. So it it also just gives you so much respect for teachers and and what they're able to do and how much energy they have to bring to their daily work.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit devastating. I was in the library at the public school for 15 years and that's where I got my ability to stand up in front of the kids and to handle the crowd and things like that. If I hadn't been in a school for as long as I was, I don't think I would be as good at school visits as I am. And I wouldn't have the confidence to handle the crowd. It's not easy because teenagers, I mean, like you said, you're smaller than them already, even the fifth graders. And that mm-hmm. matters.
1: Yeah. They they feel that out and you have to come out with a certain type of energy. And I'm never going to have like the super authority energy so I have to use something else like I said a lot of the time that works this sort of like hey we're on the same level and we're gonna talk approaching them as equals on a certain way like often works for me or or opening up myself like being honest about whatever it is mental health stuff or the struggles of being an author or getting a revision letter and crying you know often that vulnerable side can really work. And then occasionally it just backfires. And, and you know, you've opened yourself up to something you're not prepared for. But there's even an adrenaline rush in that. It's good to, like, be out in the world and remembering who kids are and good and bad days that they're having. Again, I think similar to what I was saying about trying different genres, like, it's good to push yourself. My husband is always like, I do not know how you do it. Like, you wake up and you're just going to go to this totally unfamiliar situation and just... Do something that you're not used to. His response to it is: someone who works a more traditional job has given me a lot of pride in like what it takes to put yourself out there in that way and and take those risks, do something that's a little out of your comfort zone, and, and try to see if you can make it. Your oh, comfort absolutely!
0: Zone. And teens, if they see weakness, they will. They're pack animals; they will kill you.
1: There's a really special balance where you're showing your true self and and showing vulnerability without showing right. weakness. Get on the wrong line of that, and you're yeah, you really are.
0: <laughs> Usually, my school visits go very well. Sometimes, especially in 2016, with all of the animosity and the divisiveness in the election, and of course it's still there, but I haven't done a large group really this year, but I ended up at a school where they put me in the auditorium on the Friday before spring break, on the last period of the day, and they gave me the entire high school. Oh my God. And... (laughs) The staff pretty much left. The staff was done, and I don't blame them. I get it. The kids were checked out. The first three rows were listening to me because I was in an auditorium. And I didn't go up on the stage. I stayed down. So it was like, you know, I'm down here with you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that I could go up and down the aisles and try to actually draw them in more because, I mean, as soon as they came in, there was so much energy in that room. It was just buzzing. And I was like, I am never going to be able to concentrate this on me. I'm just going to deal with the first four or five rows. The rest of them, whatever, can't get these kids to listen to me. They don't care right now, you know, and there's always going to be kids that don't care anyway. But at that point, like literally half the room did not care. And I was just (laughs) like, all right, I'm going to talk to the kids that want me to be here. The rest of them they're looking at their phones. They're talking to each other. Like they're not even pretending to listen. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. I've had one like that as well. That was, was it a whole middle school? Maybe it was a little younger than high school for sure. I can't remember if it was elementary school or middle school and very similar in an auditorium. It was during my tour. I'd been doing so many school visits. It'd been going great. I had this presentation down and for whatever reason, it just, the energy in that room was wrong Mm -hmm. And the teachers themselves didn't quite have control. I didn't know what the rules were. That's the other thing. A thing teachers can do. Different schools have different things. Like sometimes they snap to get people to pay attention, or maybe there's like a a countdown that you do to get people to chill out. And I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't know what the rules of the school were. The teachers had like whistles that they were blowing, and (laughs) just no. And you know, I had this interactive portion, and. When you have that type of chaos, that interactive portion is just a oh, disaster because yeah. you're just oh, yeah. people are just screaming at you. You know, um, <laughs> I have no idea what to do in that situation. Mm-hmm. You just power um, through. You just power through. You just do it. And now I've done it. Like again, once you do something, you've done it, and it's a little less scary that it might happen mm-hmm. again. So you're like, well, I did it that one time, and no, at least what not to do. (laughs) It's like, and try some other strategy the next time to figure out if there's some way to unhook it. But you know, like in your situation, like sometimes there just isn't a way once in a blue moon, you're going to be on a school visit. It's just not in your control why it's not going well. well. And
0: the thing that I learned being in the school system is that if you're going to call somebody out, you got to be ready to go to the boards when I'm not in my school. It's like, there's no way because I don't know the kids. I don't know how they're going to react. I know the kids in my district, and I know what I can say to them and what I can get away with and what is going to push their buttons and what won't. Like, usually I can diffuse just about anything with humor if I know the kid. And the thing that a lot of authors, if they haven't been in the school system and they haven't been, you know, in high school since they were in high school, it is different now. The kids are different. Just because you're an adult Mm -hmm. does not mean that you have respect. If you just say, hey, back there, you need to put your phone away. 20 years ago, they wouldn't have had a phone. But 20 years ago, they would have met if They probably would have done it. Now, they
1: say, why? It's mind-boggling. Yeah. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. And if you yourself are sort of a rule follower, which for me, I'm, I'm sort of a natural rule follower. So when someone reacts that way, I'm so confused. I'm like, what do you mean, why?
0: My sister is a teacher. Yeah. I don't know how she does it. I mean, you have flat out, stare down, we're going to go, you know? And it's just like, oh my God, this shouldn't even be happening. You are 15 years old. Like I already won. Why are you doing (laughs) this? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Come on. I'm in my
1: thirties. Like, doesn't that get me anything Yeah.
0: It's like, this is just not healthy for either one of us. Talking about teaching... You teach writing yes. on Media Bistro. So talk about that. How did you get into it? And what are some of the specific challenges
1: that you found in teaching? Totally. So Media Bistro's writing program shifted a lot. And I have had to pull away from that because they're not doing like live workshops okay. anymore. They're just doing pre-recorded stuff. But I did that for a few years. Part of the reason I went to grad school was to be able to teach mm-hmm. later, which I think is one of the better reasons to do an MFA what it does for your writing, I think it, there's all kinds of ways to become a better writer. For me, I just wanted a terminal degree so I could teach at a grad mm-hmm. school program. Media Bistro was sort of my first foray into what that would look like. And again, I just did sort of cold calls the same way I do with the school visits. After OCD came out, I reached out to some places and tried to feel out if there was interest. Um, I had a couple of, of different people that had given me names and stuff. And Media Bistro had one of the better programs at that time. It was exactly what I wanted to be doing, which was reading people's work and commenting on it and and talking about uh-huh. craft. That was sort of an amazing experience for a few years there. And teaching online is kind of fun. You're not having to do the commuting and standing up in front of everyone. and it, it's a different dynamic that that can be a little more intimate, I think, that I really enjoyed. When that time was ending, a lot of my authors were interested in continuing to work with me. So I started taking on a lot of people. One on one, which is a lot of what I do now. One on one manuscript critiquing. Been really lucky that that seems to have snowballed pretty well. Those initial contacts of my students at Media Bistro, they wanted to work with me and then they told their friends about me and now their friends' friends know about me. So there's been sort of a nice snowball domino situation. I am finally sort of breaking into the grad school programs as well, um, mostly as like a thesis Mm -hmm. advisor, which again is the thing I'm passionate about is reading people's work and and trying to figure out how to get it to that next level. And I also teach at an after-school program for kids called Writopia. So I do that a few days a week as well. Same sort of structure of like a writing workshop, just with younger writers. So yeah, it was always a, a real goal of mine, even before I started grad school and continues to be something I'm hoping to sort of get more and more of a foothold mm-hmm. in. It's nice. It's sort of built nicely and it, it's it been really valuable in that same realm of like challenging yourself. There's things that are like these big challenges and you're pushing yourself and you're trying to figure it out. And then there's things that you discover that like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. good at this. Like, this is just something I'm good at. Articulating craft issues and how to approach writing is something I discovered More naturally to me than I knew it would. So it didn't fall as much into that crazy challenge, pushing myself realm, and more felt like, oh, this is something I know how to do, and that feels so good to know how to do it. And it feels so good to watch someone else's work improve over time, and also to watch people get book deals, and watch people get agents, and watch people have careers that you got to play any kind of role in. I've really loved that, and I love the way it helps my own work, thinking critically about storytelling makes me think more critically about storytelling because I'm someone who really writes from an impulse. I'm not like an outliner or anything, so it's a way to put thought into the work without having to like outline and put thought in on that level. It's really like a perfect, perfect match for me, which it isn't for everyone. I mean, whatever sort of side hustle you happen upon should be something that feels Mm -hmm. good, and for me, Mm -hmm. this feels good, and I know it's not for everyone. Uh,
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I have a hard time teaching, writing. I'm doing a class tonight, actually get hired to do library gigs often when I speak to writing groups and things like that so they're doing a little nano presentation and asked me to come in and talk oh, a little nice. bit. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. But um, when it comes to an actual workshop uh, situation, I am not very good at those yeah. because I don't outline craft for me is something that happens later after I am editing is when craft actually comes in. The act of writing for me is very instinctive sometimes people will talk to me about it. They're like, well, you should teach. I would never even know how to put together a curriculum because it's so instinctive for me. You don't teach people to urinate. Like that's how I feel about it. (laughs) When you sit on the toilet, you pee. When I talk to people that do teach it, I'm always interested to see how they approach that because I think it would be very difficult.
1: I think teaching writing is a lot of listening Mm -hmm. too. I agree. Like I think it's instinctive and I think it's different for everyone. And I don't think there's like a magic key. There are a couple craft things that I found help pretty much everyone, but process and other things are their own, their own world. So I have maybe sort of five like big craft things I focus on. And then the rest is listening to what they want from their writing and what they what kind of story they want to tell and just trying to figure out like how to get them from A to B. It's it's like sitting down and doing a puzzle with each Mm -hmm. person, trying to marry together something like craft with something instinctive and how to talk about that and how to make someone believe in their own ability to figure it out themselves, which is I think a big part of teaching Mm -hmm. writing. You can keep reapproaching a story from so many different Mm -hmm. angles and figure out the right way in. I'd have a hard time working with someone who wanted to just be able to write it and be done with it. People are willing to be patient and try a bunch of different things out, take critique and try it and then say, no, that's not right and throw away 40 pages and write those 40 pages fresh. Those are the students that I'm interested in working with.
0: You offer manuscript critique services for people that think they're ready for a hard eye on their work. So why don't you talk about that a little bit about your rates and what you offer?
1: I do it two ways. I offer both a full manuscript critique or a week-by-week. Again, I really try to respect that everyone's process is different, so there's some people that want feedback on a whole product. There's some people that need that encouragement of a Mm week-by-week deadline. I do both. I do them both for the same rate. I'm on sort of the lower end of the spectrum, so I charge $800 for up to 80,000 words. You get charged per word after that. It's sort of the same thing, regardless of whether you're submitting week by week or overall, which is extensive in margin notes and a pretty lengthy editorial letter, usually uh, usually somewhere between five and 10 pages, depending, you know, just depends on the project. So looking both at the actual sentence writing, um, I don't do any copy editing and I do light line editing sometimes, comments throughout the manuscript, and then big picture stuff broken down into sort of the major issues that I see in the work. And I treat people's work the same way I treat my own. I approach, you know, students with a lot of kindness. Like, I'm not a mean teacher, but I, I will suggest things that are incredibly hard to do. And I'll suggest things that would require huge amounts of revision because I'm a really big reviser. I'm not afraid to, like, throw away a draft and start over. I'm not afraid to take out plot points and characters and start from the end instead of the beginning. Or, you know, I'm not afraid of any of that. That's how I approach students' work as well, is a lot of what if all sort of trying to tell the story they want to tell. I'm not interested in putting my ideas onto someone, but I do like to really push at the assumption that because you told the story this way in your first draft, it's the right way to tell Mm -hmm. the story. What pops out, like what's really working and how to take advantage of that. There's always some sort of magic in every manuscript, like something that just really sparkles and shines and is clearly the strength of that writer in that story and how to really take advantage of those strengths as well as sort of fix the things that are harder. Yeah. You just can go to my website, which is CorianneHaydo.com. And you just email me at CorianneHaydo at gmail.com. And we can figure out a time to work together. And I'm always accepting new, new clients. So cool. That's awesome. Good so, for you.
0: Speaking of where to <laughs> find you, tell us where people can find you online and your social media
1: my website, like I said, is coreyannhadou. It's Corey C O R E Y and with no E and Haydu, H A Y D U. That is also my email address and my Twitter and my Facebook oh, <laughs> and my Instagram. So basically, Corey and Haydu will get you everywhere you need to go. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm on all of those, all of those places to varying degrees.
0: Very cool. That should be your your uh, tagline. Corey Ann will get you anywhere <laughs> you
1: need to go. That's right. He's a Lyft driver. <laughs> Rider Rider Pants
0: on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Rider writer Pants on Fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.